Welcome to Off the Page, the International Literature Festival Dublin's new weekly podcast. This week we are revisiting Everyday Sexism, a discussion in 2014 chaired by Sinead Gleeson and featuring Everyday Sexism's Laura Bates. Joining them in discussion was editor Derville MacDonald and Jenny Dunn, campaigner at Hollaback. every person and not just every woman in this room if uh, they had an experience with sexism uh, I think everybody would have at least one story so I'll share one very small one with you uh, which is uh, I work as a freelancer so I work for an awful lot of different people and when my children were very small I think my son was not even two my daughter was maybe a few months old somebody called me about some work someday uh, and I couldn't do it because I didn't have childcare and it just short notice and all the rest of it Um, And I said that I couldn't do it and explained why. And the person at the other end of the phone, and it was a man, of course, said, um, those kids are really holding you back, aren't they? Mm. Um, And said it to me another time on the phone again. And I was so shocked I didn't respond. And I really raging that I didn't respond uh, at the time because he wouldn't have said it to a male colleague. And that's when I definitively knew it was an example of sexism. Um, The same little girl is growing up in a world, she's five now, is growing up in a world where she's bombarded with... um, toys that are gendered and pinkification and princesses but um, her answer when I ask her what she wants to be for the last few months is very consistent and it's always ninja. So uh, so I hope she's being a mirror to that. So um, we're here today to talk about everyday sexism. Um, Laura Bates was one person who noticed things like discrimination against women in the workplace and workplace harassment, uh, street harassment, pornification, um, how teenage girls are being affected by that, um, the lack of women in politics, all sorts of issues, and decided to do something about it by setting up Everyday Sexism online. As Liam said, it's really thrived. The book is about to come out. I'm delighted that Laura is here to join us tonight. Um, Derva MacDonald is an associate editor and legal editor with the Irish Times, or with the Irish Independent. Oh, I should have said that. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, they wish. Um, and it's also, you hear a lot on the radio. I've been hearing you a lot on Sean work lately. And um, Jenny Dunn is also, would have some commonality with what Laura does, and that she's behind Hollowback and also gives workshops um, on consent and rape culture, and I'm delighted that the three of you are here tonight. For anybody who may not have heard of Everyday Sexism or isn't online or on Twitter, what is the project about and why did you set it up, Laura? Um, well, it's really simple. It's a website where anybody from anywhere in the world can add their experiences of gender inequality, um, and it's a very diverse collection of stories. It ranges from street harassment to workplace discrimination um, to really serious stories of sexual assault and rape. Um, It was started two years ago, and we've now collected 60,000 stories uh, from mostly women all around the world and expanded into 20 different countries. Um, I started it because um, I had a whole... I had a really bad week, to be honest, um, about two years ago when a lot of things all just by pure coincidence happened within a very short space of time. Um, They ranged from someone following me off the bus and very aggressively following me all the way home to my door, refusing to go away, refusing to take no for an answer, to a man who was groping me on public transport and everybody looked out the window... Um, to people shouting out of their car windows at me. And I just suddenly had a moment at the end of that week when I stopped and realised if all these things hadn't happened within such a, such a short space of time, I probably never would have thought twice about any one of them individually. I suddenly realised how common and how normal it was. And I started thinking about all the other experiences like it that I had just brushed off and got on with and not told anyone because I was so used to it. So I started talking to other women and women I just met, women of all different ages, and just asking them, have you ever experienced anything like this? And I was completely overwhelmed by the response. I honestly thought that maybe a few people would say, yeah, this big thing happened to me once, that it would be something that had happened a few years ago or a particular job. And it wasn't like that at all. It was every woman I spoke to. And it was 12 incidents or, you know, how long have you got? Or for several of them, it was on my way to meet you today, this happened to me. And I was completely overwhelmed by how big it was. And many of them specifically said to me, 
you know, gosh, until you asked me, I've never told anyone any of those stories. It's just, you know, one of those things. So I started to try and speak up about it, and I got this really smack-down response again and again of, no, sexism doesn't exist anymore. Women are equal now. You know, you've got all the legislation you could possibly want. What more are you asking for? <laughs> um, there was this real sense. And quite often, you know, I spoke to one guy who told me, you women in Britain have gilded lives. Um, another guy who very sweetly said, well, you'll be very happy to know that in my profession, which was the law, um, it doesn't go on. <laughs> not, not at all. And I was like, oh, right. Okay. Um, which is quite funny because one of the biggest uh, professions that we've had reports from has been the, the legal profession. So I felt very frustrated that there was this huge problem. I wanted to try and do something to fix it, but I didn't think we could even begin to try and fix something if people didn't even acknowledge that it existed. And I thought the simplest way to deal with that would be for other people to have that experience I'd had of hearing all those stories together and realizing in one place what a huge story they tell of how severe the problem still is, but also just how frequent and daily. So I started the website to ask people to add their stories, and it just went, it just kind of snowballed, I guess. It went um, from there. Yeah. Derville, when, when Laura says it's just one of those things, I th is, is part of the problem also that women have become used to it and that it's just become accepted that when people say it, it happens so frequently and it's considered the norm? Is that part of the problem, too, that we've started to accept that this behaviour is just never going to go away? Yeah, like, I mean, I don't think we're living in a world where men are running around raping and attacking women indiscriminately um, on the street. But I think um, we have normalised a lot of behaviour that when you kind of discuss it with other women and men is quite shocking. Like, for me, when I read the Everyday Sexism book, there was a bit of an uh, aha moment because I went, OK, that's happened to me. Because sexism, in its purest form, which is just discrimination against anyone based on their gender, it's not, ex it's not the exclusive preserve of women. It happens to men too. But it's a spectrum. So it could be something, you know, some women take offence at a wolf whistle or being catcalled in the street. It doesn't happen to me often enough. I wouldn't really take offence at that. Um, but you have got this spectrum for, for a catcall or a wolf whistle up to, you know, some of those really classic uh, stuff that guys come out with, like, you know, get your tits out, show us your tits. And then it just, if, excuse me for using a language, but just to borrow from that vernacular. And then it goes up, um, it increases in scale and it increases in severity. And I was asking myself before this, well, have I ever, ever experienced um, that in my life? And I went, well, yeah, I did. I remember being 17. Um, I was over for an audition um, in London, in London for the first time on the Tube for the first time, violin in one hand, uh, luggage in another, on a very, very packed tube, when a guy came up and quite violently groped my chest and genitals. I was in absolute shock, did not know how to react. Looked over as there were tears welling in my eyes and saw another woman crying and bowing her head. And what was really distressing about that experience was not that I'd been, you know, groped on the, um, on the tube, was that everybody else averted their eyes and no one came to my aid. And... I just kind of considered that at the time as a rite of passage, something you have to go through. It was just a pervert who groped you. And it wasn't until later, much, much later, and in fact, even preparing for this, that I kind of went, well, you know, that wasn't sexism. That was a sexual assault. And what really, really struck me about the Everyday Sexism Project um, was that I don't think it has revealed an epidemic. What it has done is shone a light on something that is already there. And what really, really struck me and what horrified me was the prevalence of women reporting sexual assault, whether it is in a public space, um, in the workplace, you know, getting your arse slapped, getting your breasts um, pulled, unwanted sexual advances, unwanted and inappropriate language that makes you feel uncomfortable. And I think that women have developed different ways of dealing with it. Because the first thing, and I know that you've experienced this, as well as much more severe stuff online, is, come on, girls, lighten up. So that's kind of the first reaction. Lighten up and you do that. And then the other thing you do is you kind of man up. And I've done that a lot um, in my career and I'm a person like, you man up and you deal with it. And you know, there's a certain cut and thrust of life that you have to go through. And then you shut up. So you may not do anything else. And then the fourth one, which we don't do, but which Laura is doing great work, is speaking up and calling it out. I didn't have the skill set or even the knowledge of what was happening at that stage. And that was, you know, and the thing is that I did what every woman or man does when, because um, I do believe it happens to, to men too, you minimize it. It was just, it was just a group. You know, it was just that, and already you're into that, you know, dismissing it. And that, I think, what was really, really shocking. 
the prevalence of sexual assault and the fact that it goes completely unreported. And nobody calls it out. You don't call it out. But critically, the people around you sometimes don't call it out either. Yeah. Jenny, there's, there's some overlap with what your organisation does and, and how you're affiliated to them, but for any, anybody again who doesn't know what Hollaback do, how did you get involved and, and what were the experiences of people who were reporting to you? Sure, well, Hollaback is a worldwide um, organisation which is made up of grassroots sites in different cities, so it's in 79 um, cities in 25 countries, possibly a bit more now, but roughly that. Um, so we focus exclusively on street harassment, which is obviously only one aspect of sexism um, and we so we collect stories based on street harassment um, and also we run workshops we try to find strategies to make a public space safer for everyone um, yeah. and do you, I mean when women were reporting those stories to you was there sort of common themes was it happening all the time was it happening in specific places um, yeah I mean anywhere kind of a highly pedestrianized area we tend to get more reports from those kind of areas. Um, yeah, the kind of specific theme is that it's usually it's kind of like microaggressions. Like it's, most stories are kind of it's every day I'm walking and I hear these comments. I'm just trying to get to work. I'm just trying to think about what I'm going to do today. And I'm just kind of getting these comments to distract me, reminding me that I'm not being viewed as like a whole person, just being viewed as basically my gender or my body or whatever. Um, yeah, so there's, it ranges from everything we kind of, stories that we receive around just from things like cackles, whistles, right up to like following, groping, stalking, things like that. It's Laura, when you talk about in the book your own personal mm -hmm. experiences, and again, Daryl's talking about speaking up and speaking out, um, there's one moment in the book you tell a story where a group of men harass you on the street and you do decide to do something about it. What did you do? Yeah, um, it was a time, it was a real tipping point for me because I'd been going to work every day and there'd been a huge amount of roadworks around the area that I was working in. So for about a week, every morning, I'd been shouted at. And every day when I'd come out of my office at lunchtime, there was this wall where a group of construction workers would be sitting having their sandwiches. And it had been a real onslaught, a real kind of... It felt like a gauntlet. And this particular morning, I was cycling to work. It was really early, and I was really running through my morning meeting in my head. And what happened was that a bunch of guys sitting next to a big lorry shouted stuff at me. And it shocked me so much because I was thinking of other things that I kind of swerved away from them and I swerved into the path of the car coming up behind me and very nearly got hit by it and I was so angry and so shocked I just jumped off my bike and I kind of wrenched it off onto the pavement and I went up to them and in this kind of just outpouring of passion and anger and frustration just kind of gave them this impassioned speech about how would they felt if they'd been on their way to work that morning and someone had talked about the size of their penis which is what they'd just done to me and like could they imagine how that would feel and you know just to get to work if they had to be seen in that way and I just completely lost it and I just thought naively that I was appealing to their humanity <laughs> <laughs> and they all laughed at me I stopped talking and they all burst out laughing and one of them said, you want to calm down, love. And I just felt so angry and so frustrated. And then I realized that this massive lorry that they were sitting next to had a, a company name and a phone number on it. So in that moment of you know adrenaline and kind of shaking hands, I took out my phone and I dialed the number on the side of the lorry and they were all like, what, what, what are you doing? Hang on. Um, and I dialed it and I put the phone to my ear and you know it's quite scary in that situation when it's a group of them particularly and um, they were all much older than me and much bigger than me um, and it was just the adrenaline was thumping and I put the phone to my ear and because my hands had been shaking so much it went doo 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 the number you've dialed it's not been recognised and I dialed the wrong number but they were all watching me and I couldn't back down so I was just like yes um, I'd like to report... Um, a group of your workers, this is the street they're on. They very nearly caused a major traffic accident. They're sexually harassing women going past. They're representing your company. And they all just look completely gobsmacked. And I went, in the end, I just put the phone down and I marched off. And when I got to the office, I did actually Google the company. And I rang up. And it was really interesting because the guy at the end of the phone said, I know exactly the people you're talking about. We know it goes on, but it's difficult for us to take action if people don't report it. Mm. But I assure you that when they get back in today, that it will be made really clear that it's completely unacceptable. And we take this very seriously. 
And it's interesting because I've heard so many stories since of women who've done that, who've reported it to the company, and the impact has been really positive and the response has been really good. You say in the book, and we were talking backstage about a company you went to, that there's a lot of people who think that sexism doesn't exist anymore, mm -hmm. that sexism is invisible. Or I think as Kathleen Moran said in, in How to Be a Woman, she talks about it's like when you see Meryl Streep in a Confederate bonnet in a film, you don't guess straight away it's Meryl Streep, mm -hmm. in the same way that sexism creeps up on you in the same way. Um, did you kind of feel that it is a sort of... Is it, in, is it in, I mean, it's not an abysmal problem that's happening on the streets. So who are the people who are the deniers in the kind of climate change sort of way who are saying it isn't there, it doesn't exist? There is so much of a connection with climate change in so many ways, actually. <laughs> there really is, honestly. Um, in, honest, I've been, I can go off on one about this if for I hours, seen so it, I'll, I'll try not happened, to. Yeah. But yeah, that if I haven't seen it, it doesn't exist. And yeah. that there are enough high-profile deniers for people to feel quite confident. And um, despite growing bodies of evidence and statistics, but also that I was talking to some people, some amazing climate change scientists the other day, and they were saying they also face the same thing that I have, which is when you go in the media to talk about these issues and you get put in a panel with someone who the BBC has chosen to sit and say, nope, not that, doesn't exist, and you have to waste half of your precious seven minutes, which I think doesn't happen with other things in quite the same way that it does with kind of sexism and climate change. And also that the solution as well, right? Yeah. Like, if everybody keeps tossing their milk carton into the bin, it doesn't matter if kind of 20% of people are really fervently recycling. It won't change unless everybody actually does it together. And I kind of think the same is true for sexism as well. So there's lots of yeah. things there. But, um, yeah, I do think it is invisible in some ways because I think although street harassment is a very kind of often overt, it also often happens, off, I think, perhaps the most serious incidents mm. when you're alone or it's a deserted street it's a dark street you know quite it, it does happen in its most severe forms when there aren't always witnesses around yeah but particularly in the workplace as well so many of the stories we get from the workplace happen when someone's alone with their boss or they're in the copy room their comments their things that it is possible i think for men not to witness it very much at all and so I do think there is an understandable element to that knee-jerk reaction of this can't be right, you must be exaggerating, she must have got the wrong end of the stick. But then what I think matters is once we do open it up to them, once we do say, actually, no, this is the situation, how do they then react? Do they then say, well, that's horrific and I want to help? Or do they then persist against all evidence to the contrary in saying, no, no, it can't be true, women must be making a fuss? Yeah. It, I mean, Derville, do you think that this Laura's book is obviously based on a lot of British statistics? In terms of Ireland, do you think it's it's comparable? And is, are we at an epidemic kind of level, or are we just that because there are avenues and places to talk about it now, we, we're just hearing about it more? Or has the has it increased? I've no reason to disbelieve that 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 level of you know kind of the you know street harassment. Um, I hate even saying it, but minor sexual assaults, because every assault is a form of violence um, in its own way. Um, I think one of the biggest problems with um, complainants in these types of offences is that there is massive non-reporting and under-reporting. So it's very, very hard to um, assess the scale of it. Um, notwithstanding that, we have very, very... Look, what worries me about everyday sexism, or for me, it's not even so much everyday sexism, it's the normalisation of a culture. What worries about me is that it's not maybe the catcalling in the street, but as it advances, as it intensifies, is it a pathway or a gateway to much more serious forms of sexual assault and rape? And in Ireland, we have quite high levels of women and indeed men who experience um, sexual violence within their intimate relationships outside of that, but about 70% do not report to the authorities at all. So there's a huge gulf, um, like even in terms of if you look at rape, um, less than one in ten of those who report the cases, that actually proceeds to, you know, right through the criminal justice system, right up and uh, to the end. So there's a, a huge kind of, you know, lack of confidence in it. But I have no reason to disbelieve that we don't have similar, um, you know, levels to it. But we're just not very, very good at, at speaking out about it um, or calling it out um, as it is. And it's quite unfortunate, actually, because... When you get through, if, if it is serious uh, offences such as rape or sexual assault, if you stay with it, our big problem is attrition. So one, we're not reporting, or it's, when it is reported, it isn't being, you know, getting past the investigation or past the DPP. Then you're losing a huge amount of complainants fall out of the system, cases drop off at a shocking rate. But when it actually does get to the criminal justice system, we have about a 70% conviction rate, which by international standards is quite high. But it's very, very hard to keep people in the system. And... You know, 
you can have all the laws and all the positive laws in favour of um, gender equality that you want, but it means nothing if you can't tackle the underlying culture. Mm. And that's a real, real problem that we have. And it's kind of funny because I get to see sexism in in the courts in a lot of its uh, format. And, for example, if you look at men in the family court system, for example, um, where you have you know, a a sexism that discriminates against men in an institutional sense and in a constitutional sense. And Laura won't know this, but uh, our constitution um, protects uh, the woman in the home. It's an actual constitutional provision. And the reason why the vast majority of men don't get um, principal custody of their children or get their children to live with them um, after divorce or a breakup is because, ironically, of a very patriarchal system that says, you know, the woman... So I kind of get to see it um, at both ends, but there's no doubt about it that gender discrimination, and in particular gender, gender violence, is something that is disproportionately borne by women. And this is recognised internationally. And it is quite shocking, for those of you that don't know, that Ireland hasn't ratified the Istanbul Convention, um, which is there to protect women against all forms of gender violence. And the reason why we haven't ratified it is that there are constitutional problems with emergency barring orders essentially because, because it could affect the constitutional rights of men to their property. I say not exclusively men, but, but mostly men. And that's extraordinary, in my view, to think that the life and limb of women and children could be subservient you know, to a property right. And it's extraordinary. Ireland still hasn't um, ratified that. So the extent to which, you know, I, I have a fairly strong, robust um, constitution now for the, the everyday uh, you know, gamut of, of sexism or in those forms. But I think what's really, really worrying is that if you take it to its logical extreme, we're doing very badly at the other end. I think so. And I, I think what, I mean, there's so much of the different areas that you discuss in the book, Laura, that you, you go through various stages in, in women's lives and things that sort of happen. And I think, Jenny, the overlap here is also with we talk about objectification and a lot of the justification that some of the women talk about to you in the book is that, you know, if they're dressed a certain way, if they look a certain way, a lot of the people who've been sexist towards them have justified that as in with, you know, that you were asking for it or it was a certain time of the night. Um, is that kind of ever going to change, that, that idea of object, objectification based on sort of how you look or, or what you're wearing? Because that comes up a lot in the book. Yeah, I hope so. I mean, I think it really comes back to victim blaming. And so many of that, those ideas are rooted in the fact that we instinctively, we are so, victim blaming is so ingrained in our society that we are just automatically used to looking at the victim, saying, what was she wearing? Um, why was she out at night? Has she been drinking? And this is something that comes up again and again, whether it's in the media, the media um, reporting specifically on cases of sexual violence in a way that... Um, titillates in a way that makes them kind of salacious and almost exciting but also in a way that blames the victim to an extraordinary degree there was a new york times article in 2011 that is just the perfect example of this um where a really really young girl i think she might have been younger than 15 but she certainly wasn't older than 15 um had been gang raped by a group of men um, she may even have been 11, I think. And if, well, you can look it up. It'll, it'll come up very quickly on Google. And the New York Times talked about the fact that she used to hang around with boys who were older than her and that she used to dress older than her age. And they quoted people from the town saying, how could our young men have been drawn into such an act? Um, and saying these boys will have to live with this for the rest of their lives, which, of course, was echoed in the recent Steubenville case where CNN reported on the rape of a young woman which was photographed and put on social media by saying, you know, these poor young men are watching their lives disappear in front of them. There was a story in the Irish Independent last week about this as well, about a girl in Carrick and Shannon, and it was, was again, a a group of five men, and a source who was asked to quote on the story said, they're all very respectable boys, Mm -hmm. as opposed to commenting on what had actually happened. Yeah, so I think it's a massive barrier to overcome, and there was actually a very scary moment relatively recently where um, somebody who was quite senior in the legal system uh, said that, you know, this is actually getting to such a level now with victim-blaming that it could be having a serious impact on juries and their preconceptions about victims. Um, And also, if you look at statistics for students particularly, um, there was a recent National Union of Students study in the UK which showed that one in seven female students have been seriously physically or sexually assaulted during their time at university. Uh, Only 10% had reported it to the police and only 4% to their institution. And when those who didn't report the serious sexual offences were asked why... 
50% of them said they were ashamed or embarrassed, and 43% said they thought they would be blamed for what happened. So I think the impact on reporting is massive. I think the impact on perpetrators and giving them a sense of total impunity is massive. But I do think that it's something that we can hope will change, mm. partly because so much attention is being given to it at the moment, because we are seeing these outcries against it when it happens. Attention's being drawn to it. It's not being allowed to kind of slip. So I feel like there is a big movement, and I'm hopeful yeah. that that will change things. You know, in an Irish context, you know, you can never, and I don't want my remarks to be uh, misconstrued in any way, you can never, ever blame the victim. But in an Irish context, if you look at it, the rape and... Uh, just or the rape and violence survey that was carried out, the Ravi survey um, a couple of years ago, about 40% of um, serious rape and sexual assault victims are aged 22 or under. I think only uh, one in 10 would be aged 48 or older. So you're targeting a particular cohort of people who experience it. But one of the most shocking statistics um, from that report, um, and one of the reasons why a lot of cases do not proceed to that end stage, is that 80% of cases... In 80% of the cases, the complainants were drunk, and that was mirrored by the level of alcohol intake in the suspects as well. You know, which is says a lot about kind of sexism and sexual assault in Ireland, but it also says a lot about our drink culture. And um, you know, and that's something that we have to accept. And you know, we're talking about you know women being you know objectified. I think that it is women ourselves who are equally, if not more, guilty um, of it. I, I'm, Why do you think that? Look, I, I love a good magazine, girly magazine, like anyone else, but I look at it and I work in the media and I look at the depiction of women in the media. And some, but not all, magazines, you know, will talk about, they'll express this faux horror for some celebrity who's lost weight in his bag of bones and then give you a 25-strong picture gallery of a foresaid woman, um, you know, who's like a bag of bones. The pre-baby picture, the post-baby picture, you know, we constantly objectify um, each other. You know, and I think that that um, is a problem in our culture as well, that it's not, sexism isn't a, a male versus female thing, but I think that, that we have to accept responsibility um, for that as well. Uh, we, we get a lot of metrics in the newspaper in terms of what stories are trending, who's reading what, and as a current affairs journalist, you kind of get distraught that your big story on Anglo or something else isn't being read because they're talking about Lady Gaga's arse or, you know, something <laughs> like that. Um, and you kind of get, go, weep, go, no. But, but it's, you know, there's a lot to be kind of said, you know, yeah. um, for that, and I think that women can be really their, their, their own kind of um, biggest critics. But when it comes, like when you really look at that statistic, it's shocking whatever way you look at it. 80% of complainants in suspected rape and sexual assault cases were, were drunk, and in some cases, seriously drunk, more than six units. And, you know, just in the same way, and this is going to sound controversial, in no way, when you're a defendant, you cannot blame drink or drugs for your actions, and that is correct. But also, I think, you know, what, how are we educating our young women? How are we empowering them, you know, to stay safe and be safe, you know, um, when they're out? It's, that is not to blame them at all. But I think there's a lot to be said around the culture, and especially in circumstances where such a high level of our rape and sexual assault victims are young women, very young women. Um, Jenny, in terms of the, the idea uh, when we're talking about tonight about it, dealing with it, how do we sort of react to the idea that you're, t you're told to get over things and that it, that word banter, that sort of you know, all-encompassing net for throwing over things and that it's just something that you're meant to get past and you're not meant to actually have a problem with? Yeah, I mean, I think people try to pass sexist actions or comments or whatever off as banter. It's, it's not a big deal, it's just one thing, but you really have to look at it as kind of the, how it all inter, interlocks. Like, it's a spectrum, really, and if you can say this one, you know, oh, it's just one rape joke, it's not a big deal, yeah. nothing actually happened, this all feeds into the same culture where this is okay. We ask, you know, how, how does people think that's okay to, like, assault someone in the street? But at the same time, if you can hear these kind of comments being made around you all the time, if we accept sexist actions or kind of the smaller things, I think it all feeds into the same culture, it's all a spectrum. And how complicit do you think the media are based on what, what Derval and, and Laura are saying and that the way they represent things, the way they report stories, the way they skew, you know, the other side of the story when you talk about sexual assault stories, the way they sort of portray women, the sort of the, how many, you know, clothes or not clothed women they're showing on pages, the sidebar shame in the Daily Mail, all of those kind of things. How complicit are the media and should we be blaming them for this? Um, I think the media is complicit, but I mean, I think we're all complicit in it, in that it's a patriarchal society, as Derval's saying, and we're all part of that society and we're all kind of play into it to some extent so certainly you can't it's difficult to live outside that it's difficult to be completely 
um, apart from that, and to not say, oh, wow, that doesn't look great in her sometimes, you know? So, yeah, I think the media is complicit in it, but it's answering what we want to see as well at the same time. Mm. Um, yeah, I think that it's definitely important that people, we look at the way we're reporting on things. We can, um, there's, you do sometimes see people talking about, you know, what the victim's wearing or if she was drinking, things like that. And I think it's really, it's, I take your point about drinking culture, but at the same time, it's not, what we need to think about is, are we educating people about consent at all? Mm. I don't think that mm. we are. I've never heard of it. We're, we're certainly not doing it, I think, um, early enough. Um, like, I mean, and especially, you know, in a country where nine out, more than nine out of ten primary schools or national schools are Catholic-maintained, with a Catholic focus, and I think that that puts a restriction um, on the manner and the way in which you teach issues, you know, such as consent. Um, you know, I, I think, you know, you know, gender discrimination ending it, um, and not just gender discrimination, also sexual orientation. You have to remember that members of the lay, uh, gay, lesbian, transgender community are at, at much higher risk uh, than women um, of, of attracting, you know, unwanted um, retorts or even um, assaults. But I think you need to bring it back um, into the classroom. Like, I mean, I'm a feminist, but for me, my understanding of feminism is I just want equality. No more, no less. You know, I don't think feminism is about, you know, advancing women to, to the detriment of, of men. But I think you really, really need to bring it back. And it is about education and proper sexual education, not being afraid of, you know, offending the patrons of a Catholic school board because you're bringing in, you know, something that is, um, you know, th th that may offend that kind of ethos. So I th like for me, I think it needs to go back um, th th that early into our primary schools. Well, I think a large part of the book just focuses as well on the importance of, of teaching what sexism is and, all, and mm. all of the sort of different facets we've talked about tonight to teenagers, for people uh, who are trying to find their own identity and space in the world. Um, and then you talk a lot in the book about body image and porn culture and the effect on young girls. Um, what are the kind of responses that you had to that? And I'm guessing probably some of the more distressing stuff that you got sent in when you start to get replies. Yeah, the stories that we had from really young girls specifically around those issues were absolutely devastating. And one that always really sticks in my mind was from a young girl, and it said, my name is Nicola, I'm 13 years old, and I'm so scared to have sex, I cry nearly every night. And she went on to explain that she'd been shown a video on a mobile phone at school of what she described as sex. She didn't say porn, she said sex. And she just said, I didn't realise that when you have sex, the woman has to be hurting and crying. And I think the problem is that young people are being bombarded with this stuff. If you look on the internet, the, I really feel very strongly personally that it, the inter internet itself nor porn are inherently harmful mediums, but it's the um, content that they're currently reflecting within our misogynistic society, which means that a lot of the porn that is really easily accessible that these young people are seeing within a couple of clips is about objectifying women, but it's also derogatory. It's about dehumanising women. It's about somehow kind of putting women down, humiliating them and hurting them. And so a lot of what kids are seeing, what they're telling us that they've seen, is that kind of porn. So it's not just that they're seeing porn, it's they're seeing porn that sends a message to girls and boys from a really young age this is your role in sex this is what men have to do and this is what it's going to be like for women and the result is a 13 year old girl saying oh when I have sex I will have to cry and it will hurt me and the big issue there is that we're not in the schools talking about the difference between porn and what sex is we're not talking about healthy relationships we're not talking about consent and violence and so there's a huge amount of confusion mm. from young people from girls and boys and I take your point about drink culture but I think we have to talk about we should never talk about you know teaching our girls to be safe without talking about teaching our boys not to be rapists. To rape. because in reality you know that's the thing that 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 causes rape only mm. ever and specifically for all of these kids that they're saying things they're hearing things in the classroom like um rape is a compliment really or it's not rape if she enjoys it um, and the girls of a 15 or 16 say, you know, the guys now, yeah, they just don't know what rape means. They don't know what consent means. They would never think you could rape your own girlfriend because she's your girlfriend and a rapist is a stranger in a dark alleyway. And the few people who said that they even had anything about consent at school said that the boys were sent off to play football and the girls were told things like, even a girl who really recently had a police come in and they told the girls, pull your hair over your face, pick your nose, try to look ugly if you're alone later at night. I mean, really just shocking stuff. 
And it's just beyond me that it's not compulsory to teach young people about this. It's Jenny, have you come across, have you met, when you've been doing workshops, have you met young women? And what are the stories? Because you do talk about rape culture and consent and this whole idea that we're discussing mm. now. What do they say to you? And, and what are their fears? What are their, their issues? Yeah, I mean, we do, we receive stories in the site, certainly from, like, there was one we received from a girl saying, I was walking home from school in my school uniform. These guys started shouting, you know, sexual comments at me. Um, I tried to talk, tell them why it was wrong, but they just laughed at me. And things like, like that, that really breaks my heart. Like, I hate thinking that that is a young woman's first experience of kind of being a woman in the world, is that she has to have kind of sexual comments shouted at her. Um, and yeah, so I think that there's, there's a lot of misinformation around it. Um, like Laura saying about consent, like you couldn't rape your own girlfriend, or the idea that to have sex with someone who's too intoxicated to consent, that is very few people even think about that. There's, we see more campaigns now. There's the Yes campaign going on at the minute. In, that's in universities. I think it does need to start younger in schools. Um, looking at how basically educating that enthusiastic consent is consent, not just didn't say no or was too drunk to say no. Yeah, so, um, yeah, I think young people, really, they, they need to think more about consent. We need to talk to them more about consent um, and to kind of give them a more positive image of what it is to be men and women in the world. Mm. I think one of the most frightening developments in the last um, year or two um, has been incidents of very young children um, having sex with a younger sibling based on perhaps, you know, something porn or a video or something that they saw. And when you kind of think back to it, when we were growing up, not that I ever saw it, but the top shelf was the top shelf. You never reached it. You couldn't touch it. It was something up there that, you know, uh, that the boys kind of looked at. But now with the internet, everything is so pervasive. Like, I mean, things are just, a, you know, a click away. And young kids are accessing, just as Laura said, you know, they're accessing pornographic material. But also, we have normalized porn culture. And women have kind of been complicit in that as well. You know, um, like e e even the... the um, the, you know, the whole even growth of the, the Brazilian, the Hollywood, you know, all of that kind of thing. There's kind of an element of that being sort of borrowed from the porn culture and not just kind of a hygiene or a personal choice thing, you know. And I think that a lot of that is just kind of becoming very, very mainstream. And it puts pressure on women and young men, whether it's, you know, consciously um, or unconsciously. So I, I don't know. Look, I mean, education, I think, is the or raising awareness. And that has been the success of the Everyday Sexism Project, No More P Page Three, the Vagenda blog. You know, women are kind of finding a space. How do we convert that online? Because it's a f an online, a media, social media phenomenon. How do you convert that into social action in a country like Ireland, where we have less female representation in our parliament than well, Sub-Saharan Africa? Do you, do you think, I mean, the, a project like, like Laura's and some of the ones that you mentioned exist because of the internet? And I do remember, pe like, when Catalan Moran was here at this festival last year, she did say that she felt that places like Twitter were, were, were safe. They were safe spaces for women. They were the kind of things that women could, you know, you could tweet while you had a child on your hip or you were working, you were doing whatever. And then all of a sudden, what happened with Caroline Corrado Perez and various mm. people? Rape threats, rape culture, um, you know, murder threats. I mean, you've had some bad experiences as well. So, mm. how the internet has been a force for good and sort of getting these projects out there, but there's also it's a place where misogyny seems to have gone into full tilt. I think in terms of threats and violence. And what's your been, experience been like? Um, my experience was completely shocking. I didn't really know anything about it when I started. I didn't anticipate it at all. And within a month of starting the project, I was getting really extensive, detailed emails describing how people wanted to rape me, how they'd kill me, what wounds they'd inflict, what weapons they'd use, what order, but also really specific stuff about how they could track me down, ways that they could find me, threats about raping members of my family, things telling me what time they would rape me, um, stuff about snipers, stuff about just really diverse and explicit. And it's interesting because you get this sense of, you get this reaction of don't make a fuss. Um, people will say things like, you know, you know, they don't really mean it, right? Like you can never know, you know that. They're not really. Yeah. Well, first of all, you do think about that 0.001%. You know, you think, well, actually, very occasionally these things do happen. And, and what if that happens? But also... You know, yeah, I can be rational in the cold light of day and say, you know, realistically, I'm hoping that this person is just trying to scare me. But that doesn't help me at three o'clock in the morning when I can't sleep and the images of these things that people have said that they'll do to you so graphically are going through your mind and you hear a noise in the garden. In mm. just the same way that we all jump at night when we hear a noise, you know, it does have a huge psychological impact. And my fear in terms of the internet and it being this sort of double-edged sword 
is that what we're seeing at the moment, I think, is young people getting really involved in a kind of democratic and political sense online, particularly in campaigns for social justice and around these kinds of issues. And they're finding their political voice online and they're kind of learning about debate and discussion and about all of these really important things. But what we really risk if we let online spaces become such a hotbed of misogyny and abuse against women is we risk losing those voices. We risk young women being driven from those spaces. And I think that's very important because people talk about freedom of speech. When we talk about these issues, people talk about freedom of speech and say, you know, that's vital and it must be preserved. And of course it must, and of course it's vital. But first of all, freedom of speech doesn't give you the right to say that you'll rape or kill someone no. online any more than it does in real life. And secondly, who's standing up for the freedom of speech of the women who are being unable to speak in those spaces anymore? Um, there's been a lot of talk in Ireland recently about a campaign called Women on Air to get um, female voices, more female voices on, on television and radio. And Dorva, we were speaking in terms of the idea of the internet and how it can be that second screen viewing when people are, you know, when you're doing stuff on TV. You yourself have had experiences when you were presenting Vincent Brown or when you've been on the TV where people have felt that it's perfectly okay to say really awful stuff about you. Yeah, I, wrote, I think I wrote a, a piece about it maybe a year and a half or two years ago. Um, I, I'm so, so lucky in, in the course of my work to be able to take part um, in the national debate, whether it's on local or national radio or in television. And what happens um, when, as a woman, when you go on air, and I do some work with women on air, is that you are subjected to remarks and criticism about your appearance in a way that men simply aren't. They do get criticised because these keyboard warriors at home in their underpants are equal opportunities. <laughs> They're equal opportunities, um, you know, uh, cowards um, in that sense. But um, but it really, really, like, I mean, I, I've stopped reading it now and, I, and on Twitter I block most of the offenders, but um, some of it is really, really severe and extreme. I'm one of life's bigger ladies and I get the constant constant remarks um, about my weight, about my hair, which is fair enough, it kind of changes hair colour every year. But um, but the constant remarks about your appearance are, you know, look, I mean, I, I would regard myself as somebody who has fairly thick skin, but I have to say, it has deterred me, it, it has stopped me. I've, I've, I've taken months where I just won't do any TV or radio, you know, if your self-esteem hits low and but you have to come back, you have to come back fighting because it's such a privilege um, and such an honour to, to, to actually get out and take part in it. And I remember, um, I think it was last summer, I was standing in for Vincent Brown for a week and, you know, I'd done all my work and prepared for the programmes, had great guests and the credits were rolling down just at the start of the programme and the first thing that flashed through my mind was, what the fuck are they going to say tonight? You know, just mm. instead of just, you know, having Doing that job, freedom yeah. just to go, okay, really, really brilliant topic and guess. And it was just fleeting. It's just for a moment. But the way I kind of envision them now is that they're sitting at home and they're six packs, not those six packs, <laughs> those six packs, um, drinking out of them and kind of in their underpants. And I kind of think, you know, these are the kind of people that couldn't do what um, we do or are doing tonight. And it's getting up and actually speaking into a, mic uh, a hairbrush, let alone a microphone. But, you know, and, and I would, I, I do a lot of television and radio, but I would be if I said it didn't deter me or didn't um, stop me. But, you know, I was speaking actually to, to some people who had come to a Women in Air event recently and they were like, well, what happens when you do that? And you have to put it aside. You know, it's very, very difficult. And I can't even imagine what it's like, um, Laura, if you going through, you know, where people are, you know, seriously, seriously doing that. But what, what happens with me now, there, there's probably not a day that goes by on Twitter where I don't just block someone. I don't even engage it anymore if it's even remotely abusive. Mm -hmm. but, um, but I did have a, a, a stalker on Twitter for a while, which wasn't very, very pleasant. Uh, my twin sister was in labour, and she was saying that the tweets he was writing about me were coming faster than her contractions, you know? <laughs> um, and it was more just kind of a level of kind of, you know, harassment. But it, it's not pleasant, and it, it's not right. But really what I think you have to do is you have to get a community of support around you, you know, yeah. male and female, when you're, you're under that. What worries me more about sexism is the... The kind of the insidious stuff that we don't talk about, particularly for women in a workplace context and especially in a recession where you are terrified of saying anything because you're economically dependent, you're afraid of losing your job and that you tolerate things that, you know, that if it was your sister or your mom or your brother or anyone else, you would be horrified for. And I think, you know, when you hear, like, I mean, it sounds kind of, you know, when you even think of the way culture has changed, you know, we used to all think Benny Hill was a laugh. You know, I mean, you think particularly what's coming out of Operation Nutri and other things now, you know, in the UK where, you know, and, and even very, very serious people kind of saying, oh, you know, that's just the way that it was. My hope is that, that what your campaign and others will do is change that culture and give people the strength in a context to say, no, 
that's not appropriate. But still, I think a lot of people are just high level of tolerance, lightening up or just, you know, manning up just to, but you shouldn't. Nobody, male, female, young or old, gay, straight, nobody should have to run a gauntlet or be in a situation where they feel that their personal safety, mm. you know, or, or, or their, their, their esteem in well, a situation is Laura, ever at risk. Laura, for the day that's in it as well, and I suppose if, if women are deterred, you know, deterred by going on the radio or on television, mm -hmm. they're often more and more less determined to go into politics, not just for reasons, for those kind of reasons, but for, you know, there's all sorts of barriers, yeah. as we've read, and you talk about this in the book, but how can we sort of change that culture as well about trying to get, I mean, we're trying to, we have a lot of debate about gender, we have mm -hmm. had gender quotas debated in the country, and we've, we've gone there, thankfully, but what is it like in the UK, and are you seeing sort of more accessibility, and what, will that visibility change things as well if more and more women do go in and eventually rise to positions of power? Um, well, the situation isn't great in the UK at the moment. Um, we've got one-fifth women in the House of Lords, under a quarter in the House of Commons, um, and three women in our cabinet of 22. So more than it's us. <laughs> more than us. <laughs> Sounds amazing. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, personally, I'm a big believer in a kind of multifaceted approach for this particular area. Um, I think it has to be about visibility of women. Um, it has to be about the way that the media actually reports on female politicians, because at the moment Handbags in the UK, hmm. right? So, hmm. well, yeah. So either two female politicians disagree, and it's the, the bitch fight. fight, the cat yeah. fight yeah. of the Tory blondes. It was a recent headline. Blair babes. All um, Blair's babes, Cameron's cuties, Halon's honeys. Someone tried to do Brown's sugars, but it didn't work, <laughs> thankfully. Um, but also that, you know, after the Conservative Party conference last year, the front page of one of the papers was a massive article about Cameron and Osborne's policies, what they promised, what they'd set out, and a massive picture of Theresa May's shoes. No one knew what she'd mm. said. Or when someone... Was, was it Theresa May that Cameron said to calm down, dear, when they were doing... Um, no, that was Angela that was, Eagle. Okay. So, but there is this kind of culture and the stuff that politicians are coming out with. There's a politician called Austin Mitchell. He's a Labour MP. And when Louise Mensch stepped down mm. as an MP, she gave an interview where she was asked about why she was stepping down. And she said something that disagreed slightly with what her husband had said in an interview. And Austin Mitchell publicly on his MP's website, on his Twitter feed, everywhere, sent this message and it said, shut up, Menchkin. A good wife doesn't disagree with her master in public and a good little girl doesn't lie about why she quit politics. And he faced no sanctions whatsoever. And we're seeing this with everything. The media response to this stuff is just, oh, it's not a big deal. Toughen up, girls. Why can't you deal with it? So I think it has to be about the way that we react to these issues when they do come to light. Same was absolutely true of the Lord Renard affair, the allegations that were made there. There were newspaper articles devoted to kind of saying, well, why on earth didn't the women just deal with it themselves? No one focused on him. Um, but I think it also has to start young and it has to be about aspirations. It has to be about school. It has to be about the way that we open up these possibilities for girls because we get a scary number of entries from girls who've been told at school politics is for boys, mm -hmm. who've been advised against it by careers advisors, and even several who've been to the House of Commons for tours. And these have been separate entries that have come in months apart, so there's obviously something going on there. And these girls, both of them were doing A-level politics and had gone on a tour with the school. And the first one said, the official guide started the tour by saying to them all, don't worry, girls, there's a gift shop at the end and there are cookbooks for you. And then the other girl said that during their tour of the voting chamber, the guide said, uh, this is the voting chamber, and he was explaining how it worked. And he said, once you've cast your vote, you can't change your mind. And they didn't change that, even after women were allowed to become MPs. Mm. So, I mean, it, it's just insidious, and it's, it's everything. It's the way that female MPs are treated, it's the way they're reported on in the press, and it's what we're telling girls about what their career potential is. I, I think we need quotas here. I'm dead set against them. Like, mm. In principle, I'm absolutely dead set against them. But I think that, you know, politically, even for two or three electoral cycles, I actually think that we need just to them. see what would happen. Well, well, we know what will happen mm. because, um, you know, the magical international quota, um, and it's not even for women-friendly policies, but for gender equality yeah. policies, is a third. We've about 13%. And when you look at what they did in sub-Saharan countries, what they did after Rwanda, after the genocide, where they brought in um, quotas there, and you need that, you know, magic third. And I kind of, look, I'm, I'm at that stage now where a lot of my friends are paying a mortgage and then they're paying their childcare, which is another mortgage. And both men and women as parents are losing out. And I would say to them, you know, every time you're kind of, you know, shelling out all of that money, that's because we don't have that third. You know, 
all of those things that, you know, that people complain about. It's because we don't, it's not that women get in, when they get into politics necessarily stand up and act um, as you would expect. And we saw that with the Protection of Life During Pregnancy Bill. Some of the greatest supporters of women during that debate were men, mm. uh, thank God. Um, but, you know, so it, it isn't that women will necessarily act, you know, as women or for women, but it's really about diversity, you know, and it's not just in gender, but also in minorities. And the, there's one area we're actually doing not too bad at the minute, and that's in the area of justice. So at the minute we have um, a female chief justice, a female attorney general, a female DPP, female chief state solicitor, and it goes on. And it's absolutely fantastic. About a third of our judiciary now are women. You know, does it affect their decision-making? We don't know. But what we do know is that where, where there are more women, mm. there is more and more chance of gender equality. And I think that we would sort out childcare issues, um, you know, any outstanding issues about leave. I look at some of my, my, my male colleagues at work and some of my male friends, and they're crying out to spend more time with their kids, yeah. you know, a, a, as much as women. So I think that it's, you know, you do need that magical third. And then, you know, after that, hopefully look at the other... Um, you know, lack of diversity that we have. But in Irish public life in general, the lack of diversity is still a, it's huge, a huge problem. Music for this episode was provided by Geppetto.